Podcastle, number 11. For June 10th, 2008. 14 Experiments in Postal Delivery by John Schofstall. This is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's chief editor. Today's story brings us near the end of our opening story arc. It's unpredictable, enthralling, bizarre, and of course fantastic, in more than one sense of the word. For those of you who haven't enjoyed the last few stories in our arc because they're too modernist or literary or not fantasy enough, never fear. Next week we'll stop touring fantasy and get down to the business of giving you a mix of fantasy stories, starting with Peter Beagle's Baron's Dance. But back to the story. I haven't asked the author, John Schofstall, what inspired him to write it, but it's easy to imagine him poking around the first link that comes up when you do a Google search for postal experiments. Directcreative.com slash postal-delivery.html Jeff Van Buren writes on the site, Having long been genuine admirers of the United States Postal Service, USPS, which gives amazingly reliable service, especially compared with many other countries, our team of investigators decided to test the delivery limits of this immense system. We knew that an item, say a saucepan, normally would be in a package because of USPS concerns about entanglement in their automated machinery. But what if the item were not wrapped? How patient are postal employees? How honest? How sentimental? In short, how eccentric a behavior on the part of the sender would still result in successful mail delivery. Jeff continues, We sent a variety of unpackaged items to U.S. destinations, appropriately stamped for weight and size, as well as a few items packaged as noted. We sent items that loosely fit into the following general categories, valuable, sentimental, unwieldy, pointless, potentially suspicious, and disgusting. We discovered that, though some items were never delivered, most of the objects of even highly unusual form did get delivered, as long as the items had a definitely ample value of stamps attached. The experiment has sent out things including a human molar in a clear plastic box, a toy monkey that screamed, let me out of here, every time someone shook its package, and a rancid wheel of cheese. You can check out more details about the experiment and its results at the website mentioned earlier. John Schofstall comes from a family of writers, fighter pilots, barons of industry, and social workers. Well, one of each, anyway. He didn't turn out to be a social worker or a baron, but he is a doctor who writes on the side. The family didn't have one of those yet. John has a blog at slithytove.livejournal.com. Sometimes it's about writing, and sometimes it isn't. This story is read by Heather Lindsley, a graduate of Clarion West 2005, who has published fiction in Strange Horizons and Fantasy and Science Fiction magazine. Listeners may remember her escape pod stories Just Do It and Mayfly. She's currently working on adapting Mayfly into a novel. You can visit her website at randomjane.com. Links in this intro are available on our website, podcastle.org. So, scrawl an address on your butt and apply adequate postage. It's story time. Fourteen Experiments in Postal Delivery by John Schofstall Christopher, I got your voicemail. You ask, why do I hate you? Have you forgotten? Perhaps you have had an alcoholic blackout. You got drunk. 
You hit on my sister, Heather, at my party in my apartment. You then threw up on Heather while humping her on my bed. You now have the temerity to forget all about this. You have not made a good faith effort to apologize to my sister or to me, and I'm the one who had to clean your Seagram 7 Coca-Cola and Pasta Putinesca vomit off Heather while she was having hysterics. Also, every time I see my sister, I can't help thinking about your dick and her cooter, which chills the warm feelings nature intended siblings to have for one another. Do not call me again. I will delete, unheard, all further messages from you. Hating you, Jessica. Christopher, I received a letter from you today expressing contrition for your past bad behavior and requesting a reconciliation with me. It was written in blue felt-tip pen with big blurry spots that I think you intended to be taken as the marks of tears. However, when I burned the letter, those spots did not produce the characteristic yellow flame that indicates the presence of sodium. I conclude that you made those stains with water drops or some other aqueous liquid. Definitely not tears. Therefore, I am unconvinced of your sorrow, but reassured as to your guile, insincerity, and general incompetence. Still hating you, Jessica. P.S. All further tear-stained letters will go directly into the incinerator. Christopher. I have received a dozen red roses— or rather what was left of them after having transited the U.S. Postal Service from the village to the east side. You had tied them together with twine, and pasted postage and an address label directly on the stems. Most of the petals were gone. The rest were mangled. There were a few buds on the stems, and I have placed them in water in a vase. I have also received a magnum of moat, empty, again with priority mail postage and an address label pasted directly on the bottle. I realize that these are traditional gestures of male romantic affection and express a desire for forgiveness. They are not nearly enough. You are trying to melt the glacier of my anger with the big lighter of your contrition. You are attempting to scale Everest while wearing slingbacks. Give it up, Christopher. Your cause is hopeless. The letter carrier who delivered the roses and Moet bottle was cheerful. He had alcohol on his breath. He reminded me that it is Postal Service policy that all packages must be wrapped. Hating you as always, Jessica. Christopher, I received a notice from the Lenox Hill Post Office that a package was waiting. When I got there, I found you had mailed me a ski, affixing the label and postage to the ski itself with transparent tape. It's one of the pair of skis I left in your studio after we went to Vermont last winter, isn't it? We had a lovely time. That was before I discovered you were hateful. The postal worker at the pickup window was unhappy about the ski. He said that the originating post office should have refused to accept it. He reminded me that packages must be wrapped. Waiting for the other ski to drop. Jessica. Christopher, today I received your letter with an invitation to your gallery showing a week from Saturday. No fucking way. Just send me my ski. Don't forget I hate you. Jessica. Christopher. I received a slip in my mailbox informing me the carrier had left a package on the street. 
By the time I arrived home after work, the package had disrupted foot and vehicular traffic for several hours. It's Kuro 19, isn't it? I saw pictures in the Times when it was installed at MoMA, although that series tends to run together, and I honestly couldn't tell Kuro 17 from Kuro 24. It reminded me of why Schneeberg and the New Yorker called you a positive space Louise Nevelson. I also think I'm seeing references to Rodin's Gates of Hell. By the way, did I tell you that Lou wants me to edit Schneeberg's second volume of Collected Criticism? I've been hip-deep in classical and medieval for years, and it might be interesting to do something with modern sensibilities. Crow 19 is 13 feet tall, and will not fit into my apartment. However, my landlord has agreed to exhibit it in the courtyard at the center of my building. One of the crane operators who helped move Crow 19 off the street chipped some paint off the plinth at its bottom right corner as he was moving it, and I bit his head off. Not literally. You might want to get some flat black exterior paint and touch up the chip place. It distracts from the effect of the piece. However, if you get anywhere near my apartment, I'm calling 911. I still remember how irritated you were with that Schneeberg review, and how you brushed me off rather than tell me why. It's because he compared you to a woman, isn't it? And even though I know you love Nevelson's work, you couldn't stand being compared to her because she's a chick. Honestly, Chris, you're so twelve years old sometimes. Why didn't I realize that before? I always made excuses for you, even in my own mind. Hating you is good. It brings clarity. The mail carrier who delivered Kuro 19 said it should never have been accepted for mailing. It is over the Postal Service's weight and size limits. He also reminded me that packages must be wrapped. Where's my ski? Jessica. Christopher. I received today an inflatable love doll with an address label and postage taped to its arm. It was recognizably dressed in Heather's clothing, but had a photographic print of my face pasted to its head. I called Heather, and she confirmed that she'd given you some of her clothing for this purpose. I am disturbed that she would even speak to you, since she's the one you hurt the most. Or at least that's what I thought. It's always been one of Heather's weaknesses that she can't hold a grudge. She just doesn't care deeply enough. She never has. I can't believe she has forgiven you already. Are you still stooping her? The doll is enigmatic. I have placed it on the Le Corbusier chair in the living room, the one everyone refuses to sit on. I wish you had signed it, because then I would be able to sell it, although thematically it doesn't fit easily into the rest of your oeuvre. Still waiting for that other ski? Jessica. Christopher. I received notice of an attempted package delivery today. It was too big for me to pick up at the post office, so they left it in the vacant lot on York, where that brownstone used to be, the one the homeless got into and stripped. I thought it was odd, so I walked down there. I found you had sent me Harold Angel's bar. It looked exactly as I remembered it when we left Chapel Hill six years ago. I don't quite know what to say. Maybe something like, you can't go home again, would be appropriate, or more simply, grow up. Still... The feelings aroused in my breast when I saw the gold-leaf angel on the window, the one that Rod Wren from Carborough made for Harold in 1996 just before his accident, and when I peeked through the window I saw Joy tending bar and Harold greeting people and working the register. I would be lying to you if I said I felt nothing. I felt nothing. I'll go down there tonight after dinner and say hello to everyone. Don't come. Don't even think about it. No ski yet. Jessica. Christopher. Harold's angle was nice. Everyone was nice. I cried on Harold. He was sad we split up. I was sad, too. Joyce said she'd talk to you and fix things up, and I said I'd kill her if she did that. (laughs) 
there was a guy playing a guitar in the back just like we used to listen to. Oops, caps lock. <laughs> anyway, there are a lot of new people who come now nowadays, and I got to talk to some of them before I got too drunk. And I was kind of sad we left Chapel Hill because life used to be more fun. Not that I'm unhappy now, just saying. I mean, I was satisfied with you as you are, which was a mistake because you're a shit. You cheated on me, and I didn't say anything. At least you did once that I know of with that chick who came to your master's thesis exhibition at the Ackland. And polyamory is fine. I'm open-minded about stuff like that, but it has to be two-way, if you know what I mean. I hope you grow up and mature, because you're a fucking great sculptor, even if you think you are. But fuck if I want to be with someone who is still 12 years old at age 31. The world is full of artistic, generous... Genio... Genios, however you spell it, who are total shits like Jackson Pollock, who drank like a fish, that was a pun, or Tennessee Williams, whose life was one catamite after another once he got famous and rich and his playwriting went to hell. I'll even spot you the occasional catamite, but not my fucking sister. And you drink too much? And I don't want to make making you a no-code in some hospital ER after an auto accident like they did to poor Rod Wren. And I don't want you to get Dylan Thomas's liver. And it isn't because I love you, because I don't. I hate you. I hate, hate, hate you. So I met this cute guy who was impressed I edit for Simon Schuster, and had read books I edited, and I thought about blowing him in the bathroom, but I'm not going to tell you whether I did it or not. Fuck you, you skinapper. Jess. Christopher. Thank you for mailing me the Motrin. It helped a little. Jessica. Christopher, I have had it with your playing games with that damn ski. I cannot live with one ski in my house. It is either two skis or none. Hating you all over again. Jessica. Christopher, today you sent me Saturday. The postman had me sign for it and departed in good spirits. He must not work weekends. I was headed out to the office, of course, expecting it to be Thursday, which generally follows a Wednesday, but when I realized it was Saturday, I turned around, changed clothes, and called up Ruth Jacoby to see if she wanted to do some shopping and have lunch. We went to Christian Louboutin and got new sandals, which you wouldn't deign to notice or comment on even if you saw me in them, which you won't. Then we ate a shiitake risotto with pancetta at the East River Cafe, and Ruth told me to forgive you. Suppose I did. What would you have to do in return, Christopher? Nothing. That's the deal killer, Christopher. All you have to do is make promises to do better next time. Promises are nothing. They disappear into the air as soon as they are uttered. Maybe you'll sleep with my sister again next week, whenever I make you angry about something, or even just when you've had too much to drink. And in return, Ruth says I should forgive you. I have to open my heart and rib out a piece and hand it to you. No, I won't. It's too much to ask, Christopher. It's not a fair trade. Forgiveness is difficult in a post-Christian world. Tomorrow is Friday, so I still have one more day at the office before the weekend, but it was thoughtful of you to send me Saturday early. I hope the rest of the city enjoyed it, too. I'd like to think I'm accusing you unfairly of not paying attention to my shoes, but I don't think I am. I would like to think that an artist would be more sensitive to such things than the common Joe, but maybe not. Well, actually, definitely not. Randall Gerald, that's a poet, Chris, once ate dinner with Willem de Kunin, and do you know how he described him afterward? 
A barbarian, he said. Tukunin was a barbarian. Chris, I'm just fed up with the constant piss and shit of loving a barbarian. I mean, what kind of man reads comic books at age 31? Yes, I've read your Scott McCloud book, and I still think it's all petitio principii reasoning, and I don't buy it. I've put the ski under the bed where I don't have to look at it. Maybe I'll forget it's there. Jessica. Christopher. I received a package from you today, labeled as Human Male Generative Organs. The postal clerk informed me that it was against regulations to send human body parts through the mail, but that the postal service was making an exception in this case because they thought the contents might be of sentimental value. Inside the package I found your cock and balls, cushioned in white foam peanuts in a Reebok box. As I lifted it up, your cock stiffened in my hand. I teased it a little because it reminded me of the good times you and I once had. The skin was as velvety as I remembered. While touching it, and remembering things, I found I had become slightly achy in the bits, and I wondered whether having sex with your cock alone would be considered intercourse or merely masturbation. I think that would depend on whether your cock was still part of you, partaking of your essence, homoosios, or a separate being of separate essence, merely similar to you, homoiosios, the latter possibility bearing obvious similarities to the doctrine advanced by Arius of Alexandria, which was ultimately condemned as heretical by the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. While I was still pondering this delicate issue, your cock erupted its own warm, sticky metaphysics all over my hands. I have washed off your parts, dried them, and put them in the drawer with your copies of Maxim and the PlayStation 2 you left in my apartment. Do you need them back soon? I don't know whether you are dating other women, but if you are, you obviously aren't going to get past the preliminaries as long as I have your stuff. I guess this is your way of telling me that you aren't still boinking Heather. It does confirm that your intentions towards me have a certain gravitas, and I appreciate that, although I hold with the Council of Nicaea and am definitely not ready to fuck you, or even just your dick, at this time. Jessica Dear Chris, this morning you mailed me Spain. No, 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 no. It's way too much. It's not fair to the Spaniards. It confuses world geography, which has been an awful mess since the dissolution of the Soviet Union anyway, if we now have Spain floating off Long Island. It leaves the French with no place to take their holidays, except to crowd into Italy, which would make August on the Tyrrhenian coast even more intolerable than it is already. Just no. For so many reasons. It was a sweet thought, and the imagination and extravagance of it are among your redeeming qualities. But it's not practical. I hope you understand. I know you'd give me Spain if you could, or wealth beyond the dreams of avarice, or the moon, the sun, and the stars. That's not the problem between us. I refuse the package at the post office window. They'll just have to send it back. Jessica Chris, this morning I found waiting for me at the Lennox Hill post office a man astride a horse. His wallet lay before him in his lap, but full of pardon, come from Rome or Hoot. A voice he had as small as had the goot. No beard had he, nay never should have, as smooth it was as if it were late shave. I trow he were a gelding or a mare. He also had a bunch of crap with him that he said was the veil of the Virgin, and pieces of the true cross, and some body part of St. Peter, knucklebones, or something equally disgusting. 
He started in on whether any woman, be she young or old, that hath amacked her husband cuckold, which is just insulting, seeing as how you're the one with the zipper problem. I gave him your address and sent him clip-clopping off across Manhattan towards the village. Try again. You're not understanding the forgiveness thing. The postal clerk was irate, claimed that the transportation of livestock was contrary to USPS regulations, and referred me to the Domestic Mail Manual, Standard 601, Section 9.3.6, Warm-Blooded Animals. He said you were abusing the services of the United States Postal Service and the USPS Board of Governors had you on their watch list. Be careful, my one-time love. Regards, Jessica. Dear Chris, Heather came to my apartment late last night. I wasn't going to let her in because, you know, she still hasn't apologized. But I could see through the fisheye in the door that she was dressed in a black ninja costume and was carrying a round metal can with a very tiny opening, some towels, and a coil of rope. I admit my curiosity got the better of me. I said, Who are you supposed to be? She pointed to the love doll you sent me. Who do you think that is supposed to be? I don't know. It's creepy. She rolled her eyes. While you're thinking, she said, put on something black and come with me. We're going to burgle the Lenox Hill Post Office. Chris sent you something, but it was intercepted by the postal inspectors. It'll be shipped back to the Prado soon, so we have to get to it first. Heather, I said, you can't burgle the post office. Sure I can. I have ether, rope, and an attitude. Heather is adorable when she's determined. I hate her for it. You don't have an attitude, I said. You never needed an attitude. At night, a deserted loading dock is like the nave of a ruined cathedral open to the moon. Lifeless geometric surfaces lit by halogen floods, depthless black shadows. We hid in the dark below the post office docks until a truck backed in. Heather doused a towel with ether and told me to turn my head away and hold my breath when I stuck it over the face of the truck driver. She held his arms and legs until he stopped struggling. We undressed him, tied and gagged him with the rope, and dragged him into the back of the truck. Heather honked the truck's horn until a postal worker came out onto the loading dock, and we did him, too. Their clothes fit us adequately, although the pants were a little tied across the hips, and Heather had to roll up her trouser legs. My guy had a ring of keys. "'What are we looking for?' I asked. "'Hieronymus Bosch is the Garden of Earthly Delights,' Heather said. The uniforms proved adequate disguise— the few half-asleep postal workers present at that hour ignored us. We finally found the Bosch in a locked room in the back, surrounded by confiscated cases of firearms, counterfeit watches, and rugs from countries accused of human rights violations. "'I'll bet you think Bosch is creepy, too,' Heather said. "'Yes,' I said. Heather and I removed our clothes, because in the Garden of Delights nakedness is the rule, and wandered around the garden in the center panel of the triptych. The grass was soft and coldly damp on our bare feet, and a scent of cherries and strawberries pervaded the air. Annoying bagpipe music played. Heather stretched, inhaling deeply and rising up on her tiptoes. "'Lots of cute guys here,' she said. "'See anyone you'd like to prong?' One man was tongue-kissing a large puffin. Another dallied with two women in a red teepee that unaccountably sprouted pollard branches from its side. Others, with bored expressions— copulated with women, white or Nubian, while riding giant boars around a circular track. All were pale and vegetal as the roots of mandrakes pulled from the ground. No, I said. Very well, Heather said. Let's see what hell has to offer. 
In the triptych panel on the right, satanic mills released roaring jets of steam and spattered the dark clouds with light. A sow in a nun's wimple pressed her affections upon a reluctant man, a man with a flute in his rectum groaned. He carried a giant trumpet on his back. A white, ferret-like creature with the wings of a moth, about the size of a Great Dane, approached, embraced me, and attempted to impenetrate my sex with its furry member. I pushed it away. A hawk-headed, twenty-foot-tall demon swept me up in its claws and shoved me into its mouth entire. I passed through its stomach and intestines and out its anus, and tumbled to the ground at its feet. I stood up and cleaned myself as best I could. "'Damnation not doing it for you, either?' Heather asked. Something halfway between a periwinkle and a hedgehog jammed an immense corkscrew through her chest and cranked it around enthusiastically. "'I can't take Bosch seriously,' I said. "'We're moderns!' Bosch is merely quaint. His paradise isn't alluring. His hell isn't frightening. So what kind of hell would frighten you? Heather asked. I was silent. How about what you have now? She asked. Why can't you make up with Chris? He loves you, and you love him, I think. What the fuck is your problem? What's yours? I said. You still haven't apologized to me for fucking him. And right now, I don't fucking care that he was drunk and threw up on you. I'm the one who needs the apology. You seem to be just fine with that behavior. And I'm not going to give you an apology, Heather said, even though I really want to. I am not going to because you just need practice and forgiveness. It's something you are almost unable to do, and I'm exercising your moral capacity for it. Consider it a sisterly gift. It's hard on me, you know, because my natural instinct is to apologize, but I'm not going to do it this time because I love you. I'm not going to forgive him or you as long as you're the ones who screwed up, I said. And take that damn corkscrew out of your chest while I'm talking to you. I pushed the periwinkle hedgehog thing out of the way with my foot and pulled the corkscrew out of her, dragging bits of muscle and viscera with it. Do you want to know why he came on to me? Heather said. Let me tell you. He didn't want me. He wanted you. He wanted to love you. But he couldn't because you're a cold, judgmental, perfectionist bitch. He was drunk. And he picked me, just so he could pretend it was you, because he was so sick of failing to be perfect enough for you. Blood poured from the hole in her chest, and ran down in sheets over her stomach and legs. She glanced around, found a demon trudging along on some demonic errand, carrying a knife as long as Heather was tall. She punched the demon in the face, and grabbed the knife in both hands, then drove its blade into my chest. With a grunt, she forced it downward, splitting me from throat to pubes. She pushed me to the ground, dug her hands into the opening, and pulled apart my chest. The ribs shrieked and cracked. She reached into my body and pulled up huge dripping handfuls of intestines, liver, lungs, kidneys, ovaries. Look at all this crap, she panted. Just look at it. Disgusting, oozy, icky, filled with shit and urine and slime. Look at all this crap inside you, Jess. How can you be such a perfectionist? How can you not forgive, roll the dice, and take your chances like everyone else in the fucking world? How dare you demand perfection in others when you lack it in yourself? How dare you? How dare you? We took a cab home. I dropped Heather off at her apartment and went on to mine. We didn't talk much. It was late. I was tired and achy and thought I'd take a bath before going to bed. I lay in the hot, soapy water for about ten minutes. Then I got up, threw on a robe, and fetched your cock and balls out of the drawer. I took them back into the tub with me, played with them for a while, 
then used them in their accustomed offices. It felt good. We had fun together, didn't we? Why is it so hard to forgive? In the morning, I unlock my door. I wrap myself in brown paper and two-inch-wide clear packaging tape approved by the USPS. At the usual time of mail delivery, there is a knock. Twenty letter carriers and ten window clerks, male and female, march in. They bring you, Christopher, wrapped as I am, and place us together on my bed. I can feel the contours of your body and sense the warmth of it, but cannot touch it. While the postal workers stand at attention, Heather arrives, dressed in a short-sleeved powder-blue shirt with a USPS logo, gray polyester culottes, and sensible black walking shoes. She carries a pair of scissors. Should I unwrap you both? Heather asks. My advice is, yes! I say to you, you're never going to remember to send me the other ski, are you? I see movement within the wrapping paper, but I can't tell whether you're nodding or shaking your head. I ask Heather to cut us out of the wrapping paper enough so that I can give you a kiss. And maybe a little more. Love, Jessica. Was Episode 9, Ada Milankovic Brown's Wisteria, fantasy or not? MacArthurbug thought it was more metaphysical fantasy than fantastic fantasy, but that said, it absolutely resonated with me. The reader got the voice feel of the character absolutely dead on. The story itself moved me to tears multiple times. Windup also found the story moving. On Memorial Day, he said, my wife, my daughter, and I buy several bunches of flowers and place them on some of the unmarked graves. Sometimes I look for a particular kind of person or situation. This year I chose spouses where one had outlived the other by a substantial margin. That precipitated some discussions about loss, remembrance, and moving on that probably set me up for the impact of this story. Though I think the main reason it had impact was because it was well-crafted and the narration was excellent. Nearly everyone had compliments for Maya Whitaker, unsurprisingly. A few commenters on the blog disliked the story, but still enjoyed Ms. Whitaker's reading. Scatterbrain called Wisteria boring and plotless, barely even magic realism or fantasy. The question of where the boundary actually is between fantasy and, well, not fantasy, is a tricky one to answer. If you've got an opinion, come join the conversation at forum.escapeartist.info. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else in our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. David Cronenberg said, Everybody's a mad scientist, and life is their lab. We're all trying to experiment to find a way to live, to solve problems, fend off madness and chaos. <laughs>